Hi, everyone. FYI, this episode of Silvacast is being recorded virtually. It is a pandemic, after all. So please excuse any funky audio issues. You know what I mean. Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR, Division of Forestry, and your host for today's show. Happy Arbor Day, Brad. Happy Arbor Day. <laughs> Woo! Wait, wait, it, it's, it's a little early, though, but I'm, I'm up for celebrating anytime we can, Greg. Hey, that's the thing about podcasts. You never know when someone is going to download and listen. This could be any day, really, Brad. So I think it provides us with a lot of latitude. Well, but, you know, it, it can't really be any day, right? I mean, because the Irish have St. Patrick's Day and we have Arbor Day. So it's we go out planting trees and then all the foresters go to the forester bars at night. And it's a celebration of life, Greg. It's, it's a good time. Sounds like uh, some Monty Python song. Uh, uh, foresters hanging out in bars. <laughs> it's fun. Well, I'm not sure that I hung out in any bars uh, during Arbor Day, um, but I could see the green beer thing fitting into the theme somehow. Yeah, well, I know where you went to school, Greg, and I knew you. <laughs> I know you were in a bar on Arbor Day at some point, but um, uh, okay. Well, we won't go there. Um, yeah. But you know, back in the day. When I used to be a field forester and plant a lot of trees, besides the severe stress of canceled nursery orders and delayed tree shipments, and I'm not embarrassed to say a few tears were shed, Brad, I always loved tree delivery days from the nursery. You're unloading all these boxes of fresh trees. They have that really kind of rich smell to them. And then all these landowners come and they're nervous because they have all these trees. They don't know how to get into the ground, but they're really excited about it because uh, they're picking up that first big order. It's just like Christmas morning. Yeah, I, I don't know. Well, that's right. I, maybe I never saw that piece of the excitement, but, <laughs> but, but you know, because that, that's a different world than I lived in. But, but we did put a lot of trees in the ground back in the day. And, you know, but you think about it and you drive down the road now and you know you drive past sites that you planted trees in and you look at it and you just don't see trees. I mean, how many of those trees survived? Well, that's the important part, right? Um, and so I was looking something up because back a number of years ago in 2006, uh, we did an inventory of 57 of those mixed hardwood uh, conifer CRP plantations that we put in, in eight different counties across Wisconsin. Um, and the average survival rate after 10 plus years was 42%. Oh, see, now that, you know, that's kind of funny because you would hope for better, but then you, when you look out there, you kind of go, yeah, that's got to be about right. Have we, did we learn anything from that? Have we changed anything? Well, and there are some plantations, obviously some were really successful and good and others not, not so much. Um, but I think over those years, the big CRP years, we have learned a lot, but we still have lots more to learn about that. And that's why today on Silvacast, we're fortunate um, to be speaking with Doug Jacobs, professor of forest biology 
and Associate Head of Extension at Purdue University. And Doug is a principal scientist at the Hardwood Tree Improvement and Regeneration Center. Doug has years of research experience focusing on just this topic, hardwoods and artificial regeneration. This sounds really good. And I know I've got a lot of questions for him. Uh, but first, you know what time it is. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm, I'm afraid I do know what time yeah. it is. Today's episode of Silvacast is brought to you by Ugly Spud Tree Planting Bars. Our unique spud design may not look pretty, but the trees will practically plant themselves. Own a planting bar that would even make Dr. Venkman want to say, he's an ugly little spud, isn't he? Now there's a classic. Welcome to Silvacast, Doug. It's good to see you again. Haven't seen you in a while. Um, so I just uh, don't know if you were really aware of what you were getting yourself into when you said that you would come on Silvacast. Well, thanks for the invitation, Greg. Glad to be here. And I guess we'll find out what I'm, what I'm up for as we go through this today. Actually, it's probably better that our guests don't know what they're getting into when they come on, because otherwise we might yeah. not have as many guests. So yeah, it's good news. Yeah. And, and just take whatever Brad says with a grain of salt. So yeah, actually, and I will be, you guys are like the tree planting gurus. I'm going to be the guy kind of asking questions going, really, I don't know this question, you know, like <laughs> that kind of thing. So it'd be good. So, so yeah, um, we got a request, Doug, from one of our listeners, John from Iowa, to do a show on artificial regeneration. And we started to think about like, who could we, we get? And we knew that you do all kinds of different work um, within that context in, in various forms. And we're gonna get into that. Um, I know you're involved in research, you, you're involved in teaching and extension at uh, Purdue University. Can you tell us a little bit about what your role is there and, and what you do? Well, sure, Greg, thanks. Um, so my name again is Doug Jacobs and I'm a professor of forest regeneration at Purdue University. And I'm also the Fred M. Van Eck Endowed Chair of Forest Biology here. And I was hired on to at Purdue about 20 years ago as they began to develop a new center. And the center is called the Hardwood Tree Improvement and Regeneration Center. And it's a joint collaboration between the U.S. Forest Service and Purdue. And we actually have the U.S. Forest Service based right here at Purdue University in our Department of Forestry and Natural Resources and collaborate directly with them on really all things hardwoods. So we have uh, scientists that specialize in genetics and tree improvement, and we have scientists working on silviculture and forest ecology, and we're all um, collaborating together to answer bigger picture questions relevant to this region about management of, of hardwoods. And as you mentioned, I have a research, teaching, and extension appointment. So it's a three-way appointment, which is pretty unusual these days. But for me, it works out really well because my research feeds right into the extension. And then I love to teach students as well. I teach dendrology and forest regeneration. Um, I should also just mention quickly that while I'm specializing in hardwoods here, uh, previously I did work in with conifers in Colorado and then out in Oregon as well. Um, but I always loved the hardwoods in the east and was happy to to get back 
here. So we have our temperate hardwood tree improvement and regeneration center at Purdue, but we also have a tropical branch of the of the center, and that's based out in Hawaii. Um, and I'm actually the director of that tropical center now. So I'm kind of splitting my time between the uh, tropical hardwood work and the temperate hardwood work. So I stay busy and it's a lot of fun. Thus the beach scene behind you on Zoom. So yeah, uh, oh. I'd like uh, that gig right. if I could get yeah, it. I, yeah, I have to split my time between Indiana and Hawaii. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. <laughs> Yep. Yep. Well, I won't be giving that gig up anytime soon. If uh, I can help it. <laughs> yep. Are there any particular areas in that hardwood research um, that most interest you, what you pursued the most, or is it pretty uh, wide variety of subjects? It has been a wide variety. I'll have to admit that, but my, uh, my real passion and love and uh, background is in nurseries and field planting, site preparation, uh, early stand management of, of trees in general, um, but now specifically of hardwoods. So one of the really remaining few across the country that uh, really specialize in, in the, the nursery side of the regeneration process and collecting seed, producing high quality seedlings and uh, that are likely to thrive when they're planted out and then getting them well-established in the field to the point where hopefully after about five years from planting, they're what we call free to grow and able to um, effectively continue on to become the new forest stand. Yeah. So you're kind of like the man of the hour then, because it seems like we're hearing more and more about tree planting with climate change and, and stuff like that. And it was funny, Greg and I were talking about this a while ago and and you talk to foresters and they always say that planting's the fun part, getting there to survive. That's the that's the real trick. So we go to a lot of sites and we've got a lot of trees that die after we plant them. What are there some biggies of kind of what we're doing wrong in those situations? Yeah, Brad, well, great question. Um, I wish I had, you know, the the million dollar answer for you, but yeah. it's it's <laughs> tricky. Um and the bottom line is that every site is different and you really have to, to concentrate pretty carefully on what the limiting factors are likely to be on the specific site that you're working on and then try to account for those during your reforestation operations. So, for example, one of the big deterrents to forest regeneration success is, is animal browse and specifically in many cases deer browse. And if you know you have deer browse on your site, heavy deer browse that's likely to occur on your site, you're just going to have to account for that because otherwise you can plant the most beautiful trees in the most perfect way and walk away from it and you come back and there's nothing there. And, and it's, it's pretty yeah. obvious why. So every site has different limiting factors. And so kind of understanding what they're likely to be in advance and accounting for those is, is really paramount. Yeah. What would be some examples of things you think are like if you it's a, that does sound familiar here in here in I think the upper Midwest, we we know about deer. So have you seen things that have been really like from a small scale to large scale or maybe intensity that have been successful with with trying to get uh, trees past deer? Well, that's a, a great question. And uh, we actually I just had a master's student who finished up his graduate research project last year looking specifically at at that because we've done a lot of trials where 
we put out various deer deterrents and measured success of those different specific silvicultural techniques and then published the data about what we had never really done was taken a step back and and done a real review of all the research trials that had been done in temperate hardwoods to uh, to try to overcome deer browse. And so he did that as part of his his master's and just recently published the paper. And probably not surprisingly, what we found was that by far the most effective mechanism to get trees up and over the deer is to install a fence. So about a seven foot tall deer fence that the, the deer can't effectively jump over. And, um, you know, we looked at every possible alternative option to that and fencing was the clear winner. But obviously the big downside to that is the cost. And so rarely in our region do people fence these sites just simply because of the cost. And and that's unfortunate, I guess, because it is such an effective mechanism to get to get our trees established on these sites. And if you go to other countries like in Europe, for example, they and even in east parts of Pennsylvania, for instance, they actually incorporate fencing costs into their management schemes. So for instance, in Pennsylvania, where they oftentimes harvest really high quality cherry, they incorporate the need for fencing into, into that report, into the manage, overall management plan specific to reforestation. And same kind of thing in parts of Europe, fencing is just considered to be part of the overall cost of doing business with forestry. Most of the tree plantings that are done, at least in the Midwest here, are supported by governmental cost share dollars. And fencing in the past has not been a part of those governmental cost share programs. But just recently, NRCS has opened up to the idea of including fencing costs into their cost sharing scheme. And so I think that 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 actually is changing right now. Um, And so hopefully going forward in the future, there'll be more landowner opportunities to receive cost sharing for installing fences. And they become obviously more and more cost effective if that happens. Well, it took us a whole 30 seconds probably, Brad, to get to deer again. So uh, I don't know what that says. It's way but... too easy, Greg. I don't know. <laughs> deer on the mind. I, I, know, uh, I know foresters here in Wisconsin are using fencing more, um, but also I know they've switched up um, some species choices. For example, uh, going to a white oak species group as opposed to the red oak seems to get a little less browse. And then going to higher density plantings just to push height growth as fast as you can. Are, were any of those methods uh, looked at in that study, Doug? So we mainly specifically looked at techniques such as obviously fencing and then um, physical barriers and more specific treatments, so things you can install to help keep uh, deer from um, affecting your plantations. But but those other techniques that you mentioned have been studied elsewhere. For instance, you know, we have done in, in our region some studies looking at relative susceptibility of different tree species to browse. And as you suggested, there's certainly a, a difference among species groups. So 
In fact, I had a paper a couple of years ago with another graduate student and the title of it was, let me see if I can get it right. Um, species, species selection, a fundamental tool to ensure reforestation success under heavy deer pressure. <laughs> there you go. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like titling my paper so that they actually say something. Um, so that's really all you need to know right there. Um, yeah, so you can certainly plant species that are less susceptible to deer, and that's going to help you in areas where, where deer are really bad. And your other suggestion of planting at a higher density is also a viable one, too, because uh, if there's more trees, then there's a greater chance that at least some of them are, are going to make it. But that can backfire, too, from my experience. That can uh, result in the entire herd heading over to, uh, to your high-density planting just because there's so much food there. So one of the biggest challenges and one of the things that keeps us humble as foresters is you, you never quite know what the deer are going to do. Uh, until they've done it. And so you, you kind of have to be flexible and adaptable and keep that in mind. So a, another question, um, I, I had an old boss and when we would go to do a tree planting, you know, we, we kind of knew the species based on some things, but he would always say, uh, we'll be fine. We're putting the right tree in the right place. And outside of that composition, so sometimes we kind of have that, but, but right it kind of feels like there's another side to that equation. What is, are there other things that we can ensure or maybe make ourselves more successful based on the individual seedling itself or qualities of the seedling? Yeah, well, so I think the, that term, the right tree in the right place is, is really important for uh, guiding reforestation operations. And it, it again goes back to the idea that not all sites are the same and you really have to tailor your prescriptions to each specific site and each planting project. So depending on your overall management objectives, depending on site characteristics, site history, the planting plan can, can really vary significantly even in the same region. And one uh, pretty easy example to give you uh, specific to our region here in, in Indiana is black walnut. This is a species that is extremely high value valued. In fact, it's the generally considered to be the highest valued um, hardwood timber in the temperate part of the United States. And so there was a big push, really it's starting about 30 years ago, and that continues to this day for landowners to plant black walnut with the idea that they're gonna be able to pass it on to their grandchildren and, and the grandchildren are gonna make millions from the ultimate harvest of these high value black walnut trees. But the problem is that black walnut is really site specific. So it really likes to grow on rich, deep, well-drained loamy soils. And if you take it off those sites, it does pretty poorly. So if it gets, if you plant it on an upland site, it oftentimes just doesn't grow to the same potential that it would on, on a high quality site. And so that's just an example of planting the right tree in the right place. So on those upland sites, you wanna plant white oak, for example, or red oak as an alternative to something like walnut, even though it, in the end you might get less money from those species, but at least you'll have a forest stand when you come back yeah. to it. Doug, does some of that right tree also relate to this uh, target plant concept or 
you know, developing uh, the right kind of nursery stock that is adapted to the conditions of whatever the site you're trying to plant. Yeah, that's a great point, Greg. And, and that gives me the chance to introduce the idea of this target plant concept, which is a, a, a pretty long conversation, but um, <laughs> the, the short you end give of us it, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the cliff notes version of it is that the quality is fitness of purpose. So when you're looking at seedling quality and plant quality, it, it really is defined on the outplanting site, the given planting project that you're working on. And so one size fits all really does not apply when you're talking about selecting nursery stock and planting nursery stock across the landscape, you really, again, have to tailor your specific recommendations and prescriptions to that given project. And so one example that is, is pretty easy to describe is the difference between container stock and bare root stock. And so bare root trees are your typical hardwood uh, nursery stock that's found throughout most of the eastern U.S. They're produced in, in what we call bare root nurseries, which are basically just large fields where they harvest the entire, they grow and then harvest the entire plant from the ground. So you have the top, obviously, and then what we call bare roots. So they're pulled out of the soil and bare, and then they're they're planted out. In contrast, container seedlings are grown much more like a horticultural nursery might do with ornamentals and such in that they're grown in pots, um, typically with a, a peat-based media. And when those seedlings are planted out, they're actually planted out with the roots fully enclosed within the media. So the, the media serves to act as kind of a, a buffer um, when they're planted out and helps protect the roots a little bit and typically allow them the new roots to extend out of the plug and into the soil uh, much more rapidly than that of, of bare root seedlings, at least during the first months after they're planted. And that period, which we called the establishment period is is very very important because the ability of seedlings to resist transplanting stress that often occurs on the field site really helps to determine whether they're able to survive and grow rapidly thereafter and so that ties back to this idea of, of the target plant concept in that certain sites container seedlings are just going to do much better than bare root seedlings. And that's typically relatively harsh sites, you know, rocky, stony soils that are very prone to drought conditions. Um, container seedlings almost always survive better on, on those really harsh sites. But on higher quality sites, for example, a lot of the afforestation sites we have here in the Midwest are just old ag fields that are, that are pretty, pretty rich soils. And in those cases, oftentimes bare root seedlings do just as well as as container seedlings but it so again it, you really just have to tailor your prescriptions to the conditions on the given outplanting site it's really tough to track down containerized hardwood seedlings uh, we just as you said we grow mostly bare root i mean should we be growing more containerized to meet those 
particular sites and conditions? I think we should. Yeah. You know, as you get further north, you'll find more and more container hardwoods than you do here. Um, and that's because as you get into, you know, either even up into Minnesota and certainly as you get into Canada, your outdoor growing seasons are much shorter, right? So for example, um, I work, we have our Purdue summer camp up on the UP of, of, uh, of Michigan. And there's a forest service nursery. I think it's the last one we have in the Eastern US called the Tumi Nursery. And they have both bare root and container operations there. They grow hardwoods and, and conifers, uh, but they can get frost every month of the year, mm -hmm. even, you know, July, August, they can still get frost up there. And so if you're growing hardwoods in an outdoor field uh, with no protection, no ability to, to um, close the environment off, um, you oftentimes can get, get, you know, frost damage in those conditions. And, and uh, at the same time, we're having more and more issues with root diseases, Phytophthora coming in and, and at some point, we may have less ability to use some of the pesticides like methyl bromide that we've been relying on in, in bare root nurseries. So in that case, uh, container seedlings may become more and more common as they have become in Canada. So mm -hmm. in Canada, they 40 years ago, I guess I should say now, um, maybe 30, they were about 80, 90 percent bare root production and in a very short period they completely flipped that to where they're now 90 percent container production um, largely because they were just seeing better survival and performance on on those kind of harsher sites especially um, but that being said you know we have our forestry nurseries have a lot of infrastructure that has been put into their operations. They're often running on constrained budgets. And so I'm certainly not going to advocate that all the large barrier nurseries just flip over overnight to, uh, to growing container trees. And again, they do, barrier trees do perform really well on certain site types, but there's going to be a, a, always a certain percentage of sites for which container trees, hardwoods or conifer are likely to do better than bare root. And in those cases, it would be nice if we had more options to uh, purchase container to specifically target those site types. Kind of ironic and, and maybe it's just the way my mind works, but the harsher the site, the more expensive the seedling. And so the, but, but you're trying to avoid having to replant that site because it's a harsh site. So then it makes sense. That's right. Yeah, yeah, a lot of our sites we uh, we have nearly complete failures, and we have to turn right back around, plan it again, two, three, sometimes four times before we give up. So, if we can do it right the first time, then typically it uh, it's more cost effective. Doug, we have you're talking about harsh sites, and we're looking at using. Uh, reforestation, afforestation for issues like climate change. One of the issues that comes up is we have many acres of understocked or degraded stands across the Midwest where we may look at trying to rehabilitate those stands with tree planting. 
but they're really tough sites. And it's not so much like planting a field anymore. It's more of this supplemental planting or enrichment planting into existing forest vegetation. What are some of the challenges with that? I mean, whether you're underplanting in an existing understock stand or um, an old pasture, and are some of these stock types important for um, a solution to that? Yeah, um, well, I should start out by saying that in the Eastern US, well, specifically in the Midwest region, um, probably 98% of the tree plantings are done on old fields, old pastures and, and former grazing, land, former agricultural lands. Um, so it's pretty unusual at this stage that we uh, see operational cases of enrichment plantings and underplantings um, in you know across the landscape, and I think that's unfortunate. And it's something that we're currently working on in our hardwood center to to try to change. That's why we're asking you because uh, <laughs> we don't. Uh, Brad and I were saying we don't have a lot of experience on those types of plantings because you know we focused on the old fields. That's right. Well, they can be challenging. It really, I think, helps. I mean, my first recommendation is if you want to do that kind of work, um, it helps to hire a consulting forester, a professional forester that can can guide you along. Um, but if it's done right, it can be very effective and it can work really quite well and help to change the succession of our forests in general. Um, so if you look at eastern forests in general, we really reduce the amount of disturbance that we have. Fire is effectively eliminated from our, our landscape. So we're seeing this rapid, relatively rapid succession toward more shade tolerant species and away from our more intolerant and, and uh, mid tolerant species. And so just as an example here in Indiana, you know, we're, we're losing oak and hickory fast from, from our forests and it's moving much more toward a sugar maple dominated, beach dominated system, which has some real ecological and economic consequences for, for our forests. Um, and then in addition, you have, as you suggested, a lot of forests that really are, um, you know, just degraded and there's invasive species in there and there's just real opportunity to get in and, and try to manipulate the stand and move it back toward uh, a more positive trajectory. And so that's where I think enrichment and underplantings can be really quite effective. Uh, many of the same things we have to think about in old fields are, are relevant here as well in that um, deer browse becomes paramount. So you take an old degraded stand where there's not a lot of um, tree species of interest to some of our deer and you fill it with red oak and you're going to bring the deer right in if you don't do any kind of, uh, of deer control. So deer browse becomes really important too, as does management of competing vegetation. And that becomes particularly tricky because um, some of our species like that we want to favor like oak or intermediate intolerance. And so what we don't want to do is what we oftentimes don't want to do is come in and, and clear cut the site and plant oak and walk away from it. Because if you do that, you oftentimes, depending on the site, will end up with the more aggressive shade intolerant 
species coming in and overtopping the oak that you've planted. So the more preferred option to get oak in would be to, to underplant and develop a cohort of advanced reproduction is what we call it, which is basically just a, a large number of established sapling size trees in the understory. And at that stage, once you have that sufficient advanced reproduction established in the understory and midstory, then you can take off the overstory and release those established trees. And you're very likely under that scenario to, to develop a, a mature oak forest. And so that presents an opportunity through these enrichment and underplantings to try to shift the trajectory of these sites. Is there a preferred type of seedling, uh, oak seedling to put in an underplanting like that? I know, I remember Paul Johnson used to give the recommendation, I think of like a half inch basal caliper on those seedlings, which is a pretty big seedling. Well, that's right. Um, Greg, honestly, you know, the bigger the tree you put in, in general, the better it's going to do. Um, but it comes back to cost, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and availability as well. So typically, at least in this state, we get most of our buried stock from the, the state nursery. And you don't really get to choose your, uh, your size categories. You get a bag of trees and, and you put them out we're very lucky in that the Indiana DNR State Nursery produces very high quality hardwood stock. So we're really satisfied with what we get from them. Uh, but I think in general, you'll find that availability can be tricky and oftentimes limited to one to two year old bare root stock, which you know often doesn't have the diameter that you were just suggesting or larger container stock, oftentimes grown in you know, one, three, and even five gallon containers, which is quite different than your traditional, typical reforestation stock that you might find in, in container stock that you might find in, in Canada. Um, and those trees do really well in underplantings and enrichment plantings. The problem is that they, they cost a lot. So, so it's that cost benefit trade-off that you have to weigh. All right, Greg, I'm gonna touch the third rail here, assisted migration. So with, with climate change, it seems like, you know, we all have opinions, everybody has an idea about it, but it seems like when we wanna wander into controversy with tree planting, we can start to ask questions about, should we be assisting species migration? And I'm kind of curious about what you think about it. You know, should we be, as foresters, should we be thinking about it? How should we be thinking about it? It's, it's kind of a tricky one, but, but I know it's on a lot of people's minds. Yeah, well, it's a it's a great question, Brad, and it's something that I'm particularly interested in from kind of a research standpoint. And it is challenging right now to make solid recommendations. I'll I'll give you that. But um, just to kind of back up a little bit for your listeners, um, assisted migration basically means moving populations within a species away from their current distribution in an effort to try to combat in, um, some type of environmental change. And in this case, climate change is the main one that we're, we're thinking about. So the expectation in general is it's going to get warmer, right? Um, 
and probably drier. But one of the challenges in developing a, a recommendation for assisted migration is we don't quite know for sure that it's, you know, how much warmer it's going to get for one, and also how much drier it's going to get. Because you've got a number of different um, possible scenarios that have been modeled where it may get, it's certainly in all cases going to get hotter, but it may, in some cases, you may get more rain um, and it may or may not get drier and it may be more seasonal as to when it's it's going to get drier. So there's the point being, there's still a bit of uncertainty that that makes it challenging to make specific recommendations on movement. There's three main options that you can use for assisted migration. One, the most common, commonly discussed one is to simply move populations of a, a given species north, yet staying within the current range of the species. So a really simple one would be moving red oak from northern Indiana to southern Wisconsin. Right. So it's it's not very drastic yet. It's a, a it's still a movement of seed northward. Another one is to actually move the species range north of where the current limitation is. So for instance, moving red oak um, even further north into Canada from where it, it currently um, exists in order to account for future climate change to come. And that one becomes a bit more controversial, but people are in general, I think, are realizing that that's likely to happen, whether or not there's any kind of anthropogenic um, facilitation. And then the last one is actually taking a species that may be in peril in that it uh, has a relatively limited range, its distribution is declining, and then moving it to a completely different place. Um, and that one is, is quite a bit more controversial and, and certainly not as recommended as some of, of the other ones. Um, but the bottom line is that uh, at this point, I wouldn't recommend that at least landowners be thinking about um, using assisted migration. I would rather make the recommendation that you plant seed that is locally adapted. So seed should be collected really as close to the planting site as, as is feasible. Um, and so at this stage without, until we really have the science to back specific recommendations on, on how to use assisted migration effectively, I still make the recommendation that you should plant local seed until we know otherwise. Well, I know our, our listener, Jason in Bayfield is going to be disappointed because he's already got some bald cypress in the ground up there. So, <laughs> so we'll have to, we'll have to have that conversation on a later episode. Sure. Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they did all right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we have those Indiana walnuts up here. So yeah. Hey, right. those are the best of the best. So, yeah. Uh, as long as they <laughs> yeah. make it through your winters, they'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. All the Purdue number ones died. So we, <laughs> we had to go with the, your, your next generation. Oh, well, I, I don't like hearing that. We can get you some more, Greg. <laughs> yeah. So Doug, uh, I know a lot of our foresters are dealing with uh, 
lowland ash mortality and they're starting to get creative. Um, are there things they should be thinking about when looking at those sites for trying to replant them with trees? And, and it kind of touches on maybe some of the things we've already talked about, maybe the, you know, what the right tree is or some of the other things that they really need to be careful with. Sure. Well, Brad, um, I think that that's a big challenge for us throughout the East. It's been pretty amazing to watch ash disappear from the landscape. It's something that I never thought I would see within my lifetime. You always heard the stories about American chestnut and how we lost that species, which is so dominant and so important within a 30-year period. And I hoped I'd never have to witness it, but we've seen it here with with ash. And it's something that we're going to increasingly need to deal with as, as foresters across the landscape. So some of these sites, ash was a really important and significant component. You mentioned some of the bottomlands where um, where green ash was was a, a very important component. It's died out, and there's a lot of space there now, and a lot of opportunity to come in and perhaps use some of those enrichment planting techniques to uh, to try to pepper the site with some of the some more desirable species, depending on the the, the situation with the stocking on those sites. So it's a chance to come in and put in some bottomland oaks, for example. And uh, you may not have to, to plant the, the site at 500 trees per acre, for instance. You have to, again, at each site, um, do a develop a prescription specific to that stand and what's already existing in that stand. But it's, uh, I think, an opportunity as ash dies out to put in some other desirable species to help replace them. And a lot of the same considerations come back in that you got to manage for deer browse and competing vegetation. And one, I think, really interesting thing, especially on some of these sites that were really heav heavily dominated by ash previously, is that we have a lot of ash competition in the yeah. other stories. Yep. And so that's going to be actually one of the main competitors for your planted trees if you decide to put them in on these sites is ash and you pretty much know that ash is unlikely to become a dominant component of those stands again at least in the near term mm -hmm. it, a lot of these sites are pretty wet in the spring would we have the opportunity to plant those in the fall or would we are there other places we might kind of consider doing fall planting yeah, I, I really like ball planting a lot um, for a, a number of different reasons and not just specific to bottomland sites that tend to be wet during spring. I think ball planting has has a place really a, across the landscape. Um, for one thing, it, it helps to open up a, a larger planting window. One, one thing we typically see is that many foresters try to cram all their plantings into about a two to three month window in the spring. And it's pretty easy to have weather problems during that time that delay things and it can turn hot or cold at, you know, a, a snap in a lot of our Eastern forests. So have fall planting window, which oftentimes you get a little more consistent weather, I think as well in the, the fall, it really kind of opens up the possibilities for when we can plant. But also another real potential advantage is if you get the trees established in the fall and, um, you, and you do good site preparation, so you have 
reasonable soil water potential levels on the site, they're, they're able to start to grow roots right away in the fall. Um, and then they, of course, overwinter, but then the next spring they grow more roots. So you get effectively two seasons of root growth before they first flush their, their tops. So oftentimes in studies we've done across the U.S., we've seen better performance in fall planted trees than spring planted trees. So I think it's an area that we really need to, to study a little more and investigate, but I, I think it's an opportunity for the future. The only kind of footnote on that is if you have areas where, where you have heavy deer pressure, then your seedlings are out there susceptible to the deer before they have established well in the field for, for that much longer if they're planted in fall as compared to spring. Yeah. And thinking you just mentioned a topic which kind of jogged my mind and was seeing that you get those uh, clumpy, patchy distributions. Oftentimes now in our forest management, we're kind of looking at clumpy, patchy to emulate like pattern and disturbance on the landscape that we might have seen before. Are there reasons or have you seen people maybe tailoring tree planting to to do that as well, like varying the density within sites? You know, I have, uh, Brad. It's uh, it's an intriguing idea, and I think it it certainly has some some application. Um, one potential problem with the typical old field tree planting style of you know six or ten foot spacing, six by ten for example, foot spacing is you end up with kind of a grid like pattern at the at the end of the day if, if everything goes well, and some people really don't like the plantation look of a, of a newly developing forest. They'd rather see that more clumpy, patchy distribution that is, uh, is, is more aligned with that of a natural forest. Um, so for that reason, I think even in itself, it could be an option that, um, that works for some specific landowners given specific management objectives. I've also heard people considering using these types of nucleation plantings where we have small islands that are developed and the idea that they're going to get established and then start seeding out. And I think that has its place as well. And, and one potential area we've been, we've been interested in studying that technique for is areas where you do have high deer pressure, because if you can develop these islands, um, and get these trees established, then eventually we hope they may be able to seed out and, and kind of spread that way where they might not if they were planted at that kind of fixed six by 10 foot spacing that I described previously. So I think that those kind of alternative designs certainly have a place and it's something that we need to, uh, to investigate more. I think in those islands too, you may have a little easier opportunity to protect or keep the deer off of them, um, particularly uh, with a little lower fencing costs. Um, but That's right, it, Greg. It, so. But it, t it takes a really long-term perspective, right? Because you're, 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 you're looking way out into the future and hoping that then those islands then seed and, and coalesce. That's right, Greg. So, you know, you could fence pretty easily a one-tenth acre circular island plot as compared to a 10-acre 
plot. The cost on that is significantly less, yeah. but you better be doing this on a 30 plus year time horizon, right? If you're right, yeah. hoping to get natural regeneration and uh, even just for oak, for instance, to, to start to seed, you better, you got to wait 20 years, right? Um, so, so we're looking at decades in terms of time horizons for success. Doug, in so in my career so far, we went through the the big CRP years and we planted lots of trees um, in in CRP, and then um, that kind of waned and our nursery production went down. And I don't think we in Wisconsin are are unusual. I think that's pretty much the case across the eastern U.S. But now. Now we're entering this era with a lot of interest in tree planting. And as we said earlier, the, the Trillion Tree Initiative. Um, can we do it better this second time around? I know looking at our old CRP plantings, we probably had on average uh, about 50% survival on a lot of these uh, old field plantings. But if we're gonna enter a whole new era uh, and planting a lot more trees, um, what do we need to do differently? I guess I'm, I'm looking for the big answer. Well, I think, it, Greg, it comes back to the target plant concept and you know, really developing prescriptions for a given planting project in a given site and not trying to use that one size fits all approach across the landscape. So there's going to be some cases where you know we can go out and plant red pine all day long and we're going to have really great success um, and same thing with some of our other important commercial timber species but when we start getting into some of the more um, some of the hardwoods and some of the species that have conservation or ecological concern you know as as you move across the landscape and you're working with landowners with different ob objectives that's when you really have to use that target plant approach and understanding what the limiting factors are on a given site type before you get out there and before you plant trees is really just paramount um, to being sure that it's that it's done well and done correctly because if we have to go back and replant a site multiple times um, number one it's never going to be cost effective. And number two, we may not go, go back even that second time. We may just give up on planting the site and reforesting the site. So being sure we do it right the first time is, uh, is I think, one of the most important tenets going forward and being successful with this Trillion Trees Initiative and all other large-scale tree planting initiatives. Here in the Midwest, do we have the data to help foresters specify what are those target plants for different situations. So I'm just thinking of, you know, you're planting these species in these conditions. These are the kinds of nursery stock you should be looking at. Like, do we have that information out there to really start to hone in on that and give those recommendations to foresters? I think that we, we do have that information in general. Um, it's still an evolving field, but the challenge becomes just we don't have the selection necessarily uh, in the Midwest and specifically of hardwoods 
of different nursery stock types to choose from. So again, just using our example, our wonderful Indiana DNR state nursery, they provide 98% of the trees we plant out in the state. And, uh, and they produce their trees in, in a specific way. But, you know, if you get out into, into the Northwest where I came from before I, I started working at Purdue and, and you're working with Doug Fur, that's a very different situation because they have a plethora of different um, nursery stock type options, both in terms of container and bare root and different size categories. Therein, um, seed sources, of course, are very carefully tracked out there. So it's really kind of a, a different scenario there and in many other regions than we necessarily have here in the Midwest. But my hope is that over the next decades, uh, we're going to move in that direction to where we really can tailor the, the nursery stock types that we're planting to specific site conditions. Yeah, maybe that's a challenge to you and HCIRC is to is to develop what are those target plants in those different situations, and then it'll be on us to um, work with our nurseries to go. Okay, these are the stock we need. That's right. That's our goal. I hope we can get there. I really appreciate you coming talking to us today, Doug. There's like so many different avenues with artificial regeneration and hardwoods um, in particular. So we really just kind of scratched the surface. Um, but I think there were some good takeaways uh, for foresters to start thinking about um, because I think it goes back to what Brad said in the beginning, it's easy to plant the trees, but we wanna be successful. That's, that's the goal. We want those trees to establish and turn into forest. Yeah. And, and this is, I really appreciate Doug, the conversation because it's, this really got me thinking about, you know, it, essentially what, what Greg was just saying, but even some of those new, like we had some questions and you were like, yeah, we, we wish we had some more information. So I think this is just going to keep the wheels spinning. So this is fantastic. All right. Well, I, I really enjoyed the conversation as well. And, um, and I hope your listeners did too. So thanks for the invitation. Okay. Take care. Talk to you later, Doug. Hey, Brad, that music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, your questions, tips, and share them with our listeners. What do we have today, Brad? Well, Greg, we've gotten a lot of good comments from people, so keep them coming. We like it when we get feedback. But this month, in honor of UW-Stevens Point's College of Natural Resources 50th anniversary and and the 51st anniversary of UWSP's annual trivia contest. Yep. We're going to have our own trivia contest. So we're going to have a, yep. So we've got a trivia question for our listeners. For 10 trivia points. Okay, no, we won't get any trivia points, but <laughs> for what former College of Natural Resources professor was deemed most likely to be at home both among and on the hardwoods? Mm. I'll repeat it. What former College of Natural Resources professor was deemed most likely to be at home both among and on the hardwoods? If you Is think you have the answer, what's that? Is there a time limit to this question? Well, if you have the answer, be the first one. Because if you're the first one, 
like you, you're there are winner, right? So, so you can get it at the end. It's, it's all good. I'm, we're, we're happy for you, but you want to be the first. Send your answer to WFC at uwsp.edu. WFC at uwsp.edu. Better just say that one more time. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. Just when you think this show is going off the rails, something wonderful happens. Yeah, well, what's that? It ends. The booth! Oh. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes, a question for the Dropbox, or want to sponsor an episode, you can email us at wfc at uwsp.edu. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. If you haven't subscribed yet, you can find Silvacast on your favorite podcast platform. Take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Haley Frader, Editor-in-Chief, Noah LeMaid, our IT master, theme music by Paul Frader, and of course, thank you to UW Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. 